Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Even amid the thuddingly repetitive grimness of war, there are stories of love triumphing to be found. We climb aboard an express train line in Ukraine's Kharkiv province, where many of those stories are playing out. And there's a curious correlation between recent slipping American productivity numbers and a pinched supply of ADHD drugs like Adderall. Coincidence? Maybe. But throughout history, drugs of all sorts have affected how workers perform. First up, though. The West African country of Ghana got a lifeline this month from the International Monetary Fund, a $3 billion financial assistance program. The International Monetary Fund Executive Board finally has approved a 36-month arrangement under the extended credit facility equivalent to around $3 billion. Now, this decision... But first, the fund needed assurances from Ghana's creditors that the country's debts would be restructured. Let me highlight that this program and policies and reforms together with the debt restructuring, will help Ghana overcome immediate economic and financing challenges and pave the way for a brighter future for all Ghanaians. Ghana's lenders in the West and in China had to come together to agree a plan. It's something of a familiar story from across the continent. As well as dealing with piles of domestic debt, African countries need the engagement from outside the continent to keep their economies on the rails. And that's a political and financial dance that's proving increasingly tricky to navigate. Across Africa, there is a big funding squeeze with several countries facing acute debt crises. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent. And this is all made more complicated by the geopolitical rivalries between the West and China. So before we get into unpicking the, the picture you describe here, what, what's, the, what's the big picture of debt in Africa? Africa has had two big eras of public borrowing. The first was in the 1980s and early 1990s. And that ultimately led to a series of debt crises, prolonged austerity, and eventually the debt forgiveness granted by what was then the G8 in Scotland in 2005. The first era involved African countries borrowing from rich country governments and multilateral institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF at so-called concessional rates. But in this second era, what you saw was quite a lot of African countries, around 20, going to global capital markets, often for the first time. So rather than just getting aid or multilateral loans, they were going to commercial creditors and also, critically, Chinese development banks. And what we're seeing right now is 
a reckoning after that era of borrowing, one that's not obviously been helped by COVID and the war in Ukraine as well. Well, let's put some numbers to it. How high a debt are we talking about here? According to the IMF, public debt as a share of GDP reached an average of 56% in sub-Saharan Africa last year. Now, that might not sound very much by the standards of the UK or the United States, but it's a big deal in the region because interest rates are much higher. There's also another data point that's important here, which is African countries are now spending roughly the equivalent of a fifth of their total revenues in paying external debts off. So that is the highest rate since before the debt forgiveness in the early 2000s and putting a big squeeze on these countries. Well, which countries? I mean, the, the that average number might mask a lot of diversity across the continent. Right. And Africa is a big, diverse place. But we can perhaps group them into three different categories. The first group is a small number of rich countries or relatively rich countries, such as Mauritius and South Africa, which can still just about tap global capital markets, albeit at higher interest rates. Then there's a second group where debt levels are not especially high, either because the countries are quite well run, like Botswana, or they're so badly run, like a lot of others, that nobody in the capital markets is particularly keen to lend to them. Then there's this third group, the most important group, and you can call it Frontier Africa. It's about 15 countries, and they were often some of the most promising economies. Thus, they attracted, often for the first time, loans from commercial creditors or from Chinese policy banks. And so this third group, what does their situation look like? Not all of them today are facing debt crises, so not all of them will require restructuring on their bonds, but many of them are facing a funding squeeze. They just don't have enough cash coming in from external sources. And it's this group that I think we have to worry about most of all, because one, their funding need is greatest. So their overall funding need is probably around $30 billion. That's twice as much as combined for for the two other groups I mentioned. And the second is because this was supposed to be the category of African countries that would propel the continent, that would be the the Singapore, the South Korea, or the Vietnam of sub-Saharan Africa to, to get growth there. And if they are stuck, then that's a big problem, not just for them, but for the rest of Africa. And you mentioned the role of China in these debts, as we've talked about before. Where, where does China fit into this picture? Today, it's actually only a, a huge player in a minority of countries. But where it is, it has made resolving debt crises more complicated. Take Zambia, for instance. Chinese entities have about a third of Zambia's external debt. The rest is either to multilaterals or to commercial creditors. And for China, which is relatively new to the international process of resolving debts, as opposed to just doing it on a bilateral ad hoc basis, the fact that Zambia is now being viewed as a test case for how to do this across the world has made it very sensitive to exactly how much of a haircut, so to speak, to take and whether it should be the lead or whether some of these commercial creditors or whether the World Bank and IMF should also be involved. Ultimately, China 
and its newbie status in all this has meant that Zambia has been taking longer than it ought to to get out of its debt crisis. You're painting a, a very complex picture here, and in some cases it sounds a, a bit dire. Is this to say that we, we would expect a, a lot more defaults to come or calls for the IMF to come? I don't think Ghana and Zambia are going to become the norm across the continent. They have gotten themselves into positions where they can't pay back their creditors. They have good old-fashioned debt crises, solvency crises. There are many more African countries, however, that are facing liquidity problems. They just don't have enough funding in the short term. But on the ground, it all kind of feels the same because on the ground, if you're an ordinary African citizen, you're seeing not just your prices of goods go up, but you're seeing your government not as able as before to spend money on the things that you'd like them to spend on. So even if your government isn't facing a good old-fashioned sovereign debt crisis, for many Africans, this does still look like a new era of austerity. And what do you foresee then in in that era of austerity, where it, it will be coming as it has in response to previous debt crises? African countries are starting from a different position than in the bad old days of the 1980s and 1990s. Many more are democracies, albeit flawed ones. They're also far richer. The policymakers are far savvier. But there will still be political impacts because African politics is not too different from politics anywhere else. If the economy seems to be going in the wrong direction, then people will respond. And as well as the domestic ramifications, there will also be international ones as well. Many Africans don't look back fondly on the structural adjustment programs imposed by the World Bank and the IMF after the last big era of borrowing. Africans will start to feel once again that the system is rigged against them. So it's not just for the sake of African economies that we need to fix this funding squeeze. It's also for the sake of the legitimacy of the international system more broadly. Thanks very much for joining us, John. Thank you, Jason. The Ukrainian railway system, in many ways, is the lifeblood of the Ukrainian war effort. It's been the route for many millions fleeing, the, especially the eastern and initially the northern parts of Ukraine, to get away from the advancing Russian troops. Oliver Carroll is a Ukraine correspondent for The Economist. And in the opposite direction, it's been for weapons, for soldiers, and in this case, we have a very interesting train, the Kiev to Kramatorsk Express, which has a story of itself, which in many ways reflects the war. In the first few weeks, it was used for evacuating people. And then there was a pretty horrific Russian strike on the Kramatorsk station. The station at Kramatorsk was crowded with passengers, among them many women and children, trying to get a train to take them to safety. Focus on the words on the side of that missile, Zadeti, it means for children or for the children. Dozens were killed and many others injured. The picture was grim of prams with all the contents spluttered over the railway platform. And in fact, to this day, the station in Kramatorsk has a memorial 
of children's toys which had been placed in the railings by the railway platform. After that, the train stopped running for many months. The attack on the station, which was in April, changed Kramatorsk forever. The Kramatorsk Express train, which takes about six and a half, seven hours, that was reinstated when Ukrainian troops took back a large swathe of territory in the Kharkiv province in September of last year. That made the routing of the train slightly safer. And ever since, it's pretty much exclusively either soldiers or the wives and girlfriends of soldiers traveling to the front line, traveling to Kramatorsk, which has become this very unusual place, this sort of capital of love in the middle of grimness, where soldiers who can't go very far from their positions are allowed to disappear for a couple of days, meet with their wives and girlfriends, and then return to the front lines often in Bakhmut or in Avdiivka, where some of the fiercest fighting has been going on. I met two of them on the train on their way to see their loved ones, Toria and Karolina. And what they were telling me was what they're going through is a sort of second war of their own, in their own homes. They're reliving every moment. Every news item related to Bakhmut was a trigger. And they told me, just receiving the sign of life from their men, often after a long period, because they weren't always within range of mobile connections or satellite connections. And that was such a relief. The moment of them coming together, it's obviously very emotional, but very quiet. You saw these couples simply happy to be together again in their own embrace. And I think at those moments, sometimes words are superfluous. In Victoria and Karolina's case, they'd seen all the news coming out of Blackmouth, obviously hadn't been particularly great. And they'd been waiting for the time when they could come and see their other halves, for two or three days in this, as I said, rather makeshift love capital right near the front lines. It's difficult to sort of get across the idea of this fairly depressed town, which is living only for military purposes. Most of the civilian population have left. I mean, it's not an unpleasant town, but it certainly isn't Paris. And yet it has become the sort of Paris for these soldiers. And you see, during the air alerts, during the sirens, couples walking in the main squares without a care in the world. And it's really important to realise that they're well within range of multiple rocket launchers or other kinds of missiles. The nearest Russian positions are about 20 kilometres away. And you hear, but you have this sort of economy of flower shops, of restaurants, cafes. And I was speaking to a real estate agent who used to have a business in renting flats for long periods to locals, that whole business model has changed. There aren't any hotels anymore, at least not operating openly, after one of them was hit by a Russian missile last June. So what he's doing is he's renting apartments out by the hour, by the day, to military men. And he was saying that 80% of his business is now this short-term military couples coming into Kramatorsk for a weekend.
Of course, it's not only the wives and girlfriends. For many of these soldiers, they don't have partners to call on. And so you also find a different kind of love operating in Kramatorsk, a commercial side of love. There are two new brothels in Kramatorsk. One of them is located in an industrial part of the city. And we went along just to see how things are operating. And it's fair to say business is very brisk. From our conversations with the girls later, it seemed very clear that they saw their role in the war very much in patriotic terms. Their view of how the war is going on, obviously a very unique view, really hammered home the psychological effect that the war is having on often very young soldiers. One of them said to me that the psychological condition of those who've been fighting in Bakhmut, for example, is appalling. And I asked if any of her clients were suffering post-traumatic stress, she said, immediately everyone is. Essentially, for them, she said, it's not about the sex so much. It's about the connection. It's about having a person to speak to, to talk about the terrible things you've seen. But they were a lively bunch. They told me essentially how they work 24-7. If there's a siren or there's not a siren, it really doesn't matter. One of them said they do outcalls to positions quite near to the front lines. Which she was talking about how they travel these roads which have been shelled. And on the one side, they have these military vehicles and ambulances. And I said, well, your service is kind of like an ambulance, I said. And she said, no, 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 we're not an ambulance. We are a resuscitation brigade. <laughs> so they certainly saw the, <laughs> the funny side of things. But what they were saying is, again, they see their role as part of the military effort. You know, she said, so what you can do in those situations, you caress them, you tell them they're fighters, you tell them they're the best, and then you pack them off. And many of the people who walked through those doors in a few weeks' time maybe returned in body bags. The girls were working actually in, in a different town, Mikolai, another frontline town. But when their unit was moved to the backward front, they decided to come and be near their boys, as it were. So in amongst the comedy, there is a sort of, there's a love story there too. What it really does hammer home is just the extent to which this war is a full national war, with everyone playing their part in whatever way. I mean, some of these stories might be lewd, others more traditional love stories. But everyone in a way saw themselves as helping these soldiers who are in some of the worst times of their lives, with very raw and, and brutal emotions at the same time. So I caught up with Victoria after her weekend with Alexander, and she was talking about how they'd been planning for many things in the future. But she felt that their connection, their love, was, in her words, the little fire which will keep her mind alive. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? 
Bank of America NA, copyright 2024. Alcohol and the creative process. Just a little something to take the edge off. It's a romanticized idea that's long flowed through film and television. I bet daily friendship with that bottle attracts more people to advertising than any salary you could dream of. That's why I got in. It's a central theme in Mad Men. Add creatives tapping into their genius after a couple of old fashions. But the relationship between the work that people do and the drugs that they may or may not do is difficult to unpick. Roughly speaking, for the past six months, America has been dealing with shortages of drugs such as Adderall. Callum Williams is The Economist's senior economics writer. Now, millions or perhaps tens of millions of Americans use these drugs, either to treat conditions or just to improve their focus and concentration. Now, the interesting thing is that in the first quarter of 2023, productivity figures were released for the US, which is basically how efficient people are working. And productivity in that quarter declined by 3%, which is actually a pretty big fall. And so some people have kind of half-jokingly been wondering whether there's a correlation between shortages of Adderall and the like and declining productivity. And what do you make of that? It is tempting to make that link. It's tempting. It's probably a coincidence. But there's a few things to bear in mind. One is that surprising one-off things can have actually a large effect on measured output. So, for example, when there's a big strike, public holidays, that kind of thing, do have a measurable impact on the economic statistics. So it's not completely far-fetched on its face to suggest that if there are genuinely millions of people going without something that's really important to their lives, that it could have a marginal impact on how productive they are at work. But then there's a broader question, which is really where the economic history comes in, which is that drugs broadly defined or stimulants broadly defined have had actually a pretty big impact, certainly on Western economic growth. At the mere mention of uh, economic history, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. Okay, so just to be clear, drugs as a whole are generally not thought to be something that helps people get richer. So, you know, hard drugs, for example have large economic costs, not just in terms of crime and all that kind of stuff, but in terms of how people turn up to work and all that kind of thing. And then, of course, you have other drugs like alcohol, which, you know, some people kind of claim that it's good for creativity. I mean, none of that really holds up to any scrutiny. But there are two commodities in particular which do. There is a long literature which suggests that they have had a very substantial impact on productivity over the long run. And the first one is sugar, and the second one is coffee. So we will put both the Adderall and the cocaine aside for the moment, Callum. Um, Tell me how sugar figures into this story. Okay, so sugar is the big story really from about 1700, and it's it's most clearly visible in, in, in what happens in the UK. So around 1700, you've got a problem across Western Europe, which is that people basically don't have enough calories to eat. But of course, people at the time had pretty energy intensive jobs, like working in fields and all that kind of stuff. And so you had the situation where people physically were not able to work as much as they would like to. This was basically a big limiting factor on economic growth. What you then have in the UK from about 1700 is a big surge in sugar imports. And so basically it gives the entire British economy basically a sugar high. People are able to do more work than they've ever been able to do before. And you can see this very clearly in the contrast with France, where sugar imports did go up, but they didn't go up by anywhere near as much. 
And you can see it very clearly in the GDP data. British GDP growth in the 18th century is just so much faster than it is in France. I'm not saying it's all down to sugar, but I think a, a big part of it actually is. Okay, that seems a pretty open and shut case for sugar. What about coffee? So coffee, you don't have statistics on this which are as neat as the ones as for sugar, but the case I think is still pretty clear. I think the way to think about it is that sugar enabled people to work harder and more, and coffee enabled people to work smarter. And it's really something that comes around the same time, actually. What you get with the Industrial Revolution is the rise of factories and so on. And so what you need then is you need people's sleep rhythms to be disrupted, and you therefore need something that will enable people to wake up at an unnatural time and still feel reasonably alert in order to go to the factory and work. So that's where coffee comes in. And then for the kind of middle-class people, coffee is really useful for discussions and for ideas. So what you get from the foundation of the Royal Society in the middle of the 17th century in, in, in London is this kind of move where science goes from something that's kind of purely academic to a, a discipline that's much more concerned with like solving real-world problems. And coffee is really important for that because coffee shops and, and coffee houses are actually a really big place where people who are interested in science and applied science will come together and discuss things. And, you know, people are not drinking, so they're not getting raucous, they're not shouting at each other. It's a civilised, intellectually stimulating setting. And, you know, it wouldn't have happened without coffee. And that's even more tempting than to see what's going on with American productivity numbers being linked somehow to what's going on with Adderall and the like. You know, it's a slightly far-fetched theory, but it's not implausible. And if you look at the people that are likeliest to use these drugs for kind of recreational purposes, it sometimes seems as though one in every two people in Silicon Valley is on Adderall, and Silicon Valley is the most productive place probably on Earth. So there may be some future paper that comes out that shows that, in fact, the shortage did have a bit of an impact on productivity growth, but I will await the research of more accomplished economists. Callum, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in with the deal we've got at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.